This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time. In one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Sarah Manguso, author of the novel Very Cold People. I was so afraid of the idea of writing a novel that I I think I just, I don't know, the phobia kind of welled up to protect me in some way from writing a conventional novel. We'll be back with Sarah Manguso after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, But there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. 
and it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment. And on to the show. My guest today is fiction writer, essayist, and poet Sarah Manguso. Her nonfiction books are 300 Arguments, Ongoingness, The Guardians, and Two Kinds of Decay. Her other books include the poetry collections Siste, Viator, and The Captain Lands in Paradise. Her story collection is called Hard to Admit and Harder to Escape. Her work has been recognized by an American Academy of Arts and Letters Literature Award, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and the Rome Prize. She grew up in Massachusetts and now lives in Los Angeles, where she teaches creative writing at Antioch University. Her new novel is called Very Cold People and tells the story of teenage Ruthie who lives in Waitsfield, Massachusetts, a historic town that was once home to the wealthiest families in New England. Ruthie's family is just squeezing by and that contributes to her feelings of not fitting in with the privilege around her. Very Cold People is a close look at Ruthie's interior life, the danger of living in the world as a girl, violence and shame, what we inherit, and what we can change in the course of our lifetime. Social class and American whiteness loom in the background of Ruthie's life, along with untold secrets, the desire for more, and the dark hope that things can change for her. We began the discussion with Sarah Manguso talking about writing her first novel and what material had been bubbling up inside her that made its way into the story. I have to say that the material had been bubbling for at least 25 years before I began writing what ultimately became a novel. I tried to write about it in different forms and from different perspectives. And um, well, in its earliest prose form, while I was writing what would eventually become my first memoir, which is a, a book about a chronic illness called The Two Kinds of Decay, I thought the book would be about Massachusetts. I thought it would be, would be about social class and about the somewhat peculiar and extremely particular experience of being a uh, first-generation resident college student, having grown up geographically just outside Harvard Square in Wellesley, on the other side of this impenetrable barrier separating, you know, 
part of the town's population from the other part. And um, the first part of the two, the two kinds of decay that I wrote takes place in Harvard Arts and Letters Society with, you know, essentially servants, waitstaff who cooked for us and waited on us. And at the very end of that little section, it, it can't have been more than a couple of thousand words, I mentioned that I was wearing a catheter in my heart that year. And then, you know, as uh, I had every good intention of finishing this work about Massachusetts, but it became, you know, I felt that all the context that I needed to explain why I was wearing a catheter in my heart just took me down another avenue and it became a book about illness. But the Massachusetts material really had been bubbling in me since early childhood. I was born in Massachusetts and I grew up there and I left when I was 23. I had this idea for a book that was kind of always floating out past the horizon, just out of reach. And I tried to write it as memoir and it didn't really work because I just, I don't know, either I had written too many memoirs at that point and the the form just didn't really capture my attention in the way that it had that it had originally, or that the material just wasn't good enough for a memoir. It just didn't suit memoir. And then for a long time, I envisioned it as this like you know highly researched uh, sociological study, like um, you know like a PhD thesis on class and and whiteness, really about who got to define whiteness for whom and when which is an exquisitely complicated calculation depending on you know where in Massachusetts you are and in what part of the 17th, 18th, 19th or 20th century you're you're standing there in and um, you know I've read a lot of books but I um, you know it didn't really light the fuse in the way that it really needs to like be lit and it needs to maintain that energy for at least a few years and then, having sworn for decades that I would never write a novel, that I wasn't interested in writing a novel because I had this idea of a novelist and of novels. You know, even though I, I, I read wonderful, unconventional novels all the time, for some reason, I thought that if I wrote a novel, it would have to be a conventional novel. And I didn't want to do that. Therefore, I didn't have to write a novel. This is, you know, this is where avoidance and perfectionism come into play. And so it was just this internal barrier that I had between me as I envisioned myself and, you know, the way that I envisioned a person who could potentially write a novel that had to just dissolve before I could even start. But once it did, it became very easy. It became rather obvious to me that that was the form that I needed in order to engage and completely encounter and, um, you know, almost exercise the material. So how did you go from this idea of writing about whiteness and very academic researched to this story that this story is about young Ruthie and we see her before high school. Her family moves to this town, Waitsfield in Massachusetts, which is very inhabited by history. The first wealthy families that live there and they're just the thrift store economics really in their family. They can't really afford the life they've lived, but they are there and she feels very out of place. And she has a very distant mother who's both in some ways overly protective and in other ways very far and distant from her daughter. And she's the only child in this family. And her mom has some distant 
relatives and some closer relatives, I think, who came from the kind of money that they don't have as a family. And we're just seeing her. It's a very internal story about her relationship with her mother and her relationship to the other kids at school. And it's a lot about maybe the claustrophobia of her family and the inheritance of violence and uh, ghosts that surround her and their status in life in this community. That's incredibly accurate. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So how did you get to that story from this big idea of whiteness? If I am to answer that honestly, I would say that that story that I eventually wrote is the story that I had been running away from for 25 years. On the one hand, I think I was still affected by the somewhat antiquated idea that writing a story about a girl isn't interesting enough. You know, it's just, it's just a girl, despite there being, you know, much worthwhile literature written about girls. I had to remember how it felt to be a girl in Massachusetts in the 70s, in the 80s. In the 80s. You know, one of the fundamental experiences of girlhood during that time is that you weren't important and nobody cared about you because you, know, you, were, you were you were just you were just one girl. You know, as with the the trend of the contemporary serious nonfiction book, you have to also be saying something philosophical and something sociological because otherwise it's just one story and nobody cares about a story. And once I realized that in fiction, you actually could just write a story about a girl, you, you know, you didn't have to kind of say, here's the homework that I did in order to make it okay for me to also write this story of a girl. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't have to summarize all of these other books, um, you know, about how, how the Irish became white and in the 19th century. I, I could just write this story, you know, heavily influenced by my own memories of growing up in Massachusetts. I mean, I could just, I could just make it a novel. And once I realized first that the book needed to be fiction and that there were things in fiction that I hadn't really been able to do before in my books of nonfiction, the fuse was lit and it remained lit and it in the book just it remained interesting long enough for me to finish writing it you you said that you had this desire to write fiction when you realized the story or you didn't want to write fiction but when you realized that you had to write fiction you had a desire to have it not be conventional fiction so an unconventional structure is of interest to you and then you have this explanation kind of like that people aren't interested in a girl. And I'm wondering how the unconventional structure that you use in your writing and maybe this idea of being seen intermixes. I realize now that my fear, you know, it's similar to the fear that I used to have when I first moved to California, I was not a freeway driver. And so I, drove on surface streets and it took me forever to get anywhere. But I also had this irrational fear that if I drove like down Sepulveda, I would be teleported onto the freeway and I would die. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, it, it's, it's insane. You know, it, it's irrational. It's an irrational fear like phobias are. And, um, and yet I had this irrational fear for years that I would just like get on the freeway by, by accident somehow, if I were like driving parallel to it, I would just be teleported onto the 10 or the four or five. And I think it's very similar to the fear that I had 
that if I began writing a novel, it would turn out to be the most conventional paint by number, you know, three act, 350 page, 30 chapter, you know, the, the basic novel that anybody could type out, which is similarly insane because, you know, that's like, sure, you could, one could force oneself to make a novel like that. But, you know, this is my eighth book. I've, I've written various books of various forms and I have up to this point felt really quite calm and, um, you know, and, and accepting of the process by which the form kind of comes into being along with the so-called content. I mean, it's like everything, it's all art, it's all artifice. It's like, it's all something being made. And, um, and I've never made a book by writing, you know, filling in an outline or deciding on the form and then filling in the form. And um, it's just not how I work, but I was so afraid of the idea of writing a novel that I, I think I just, I don't know, the phobia kind of welled up to protect me in some way from writing a conventional novel. And then, um, you know, and just like one day I did get on the freeway by accident and I was fine. And I'm now a comfortable, calm freeway driver. And similarly, I'm I'm working on a new novel very, uh, very happily. Yeah. And I think what I was asking you and if you have some, something in you either as an artist or just in, in, as an individual where you both want to be seen and you also don't want to be seen. Oh, sure. God. I mean, there, that, there's so much to say about that. I think being alive as a woman, uh, being alive as a middle-aged woman in Los Angeles and being an artist of any type um, who isn't a performer, um, you know, at this contemporary moment, I think one is constantly negotiating a balance between all of those binaries. Like I want to be seen, I don't want to be seen. I have pictures of myself on the internet, but I don't do social media. I write memoirs, but I don't engage in, in uh, casual back and forth in public forums. I, um, you know, basically like speaking for myself, I, I want total control over, over, you know, what I, what I put out there in representation of myself. And, and so it sounds as if also, you know, you're asking, um, you know, was there some material that was too difficult to write about in the first person that was easier to kind of um, massage into the life of this imagined girl. And the answer to that is absolutely yes, yes, completely. I I found out, you know, I, I kind of tentatively found out the way that personal experience can be transmuted into fiction in a way that did not feel artificial or wooden or transparently evasive. And with the novel that I'm working on now, it, it's it's just, it's a little bit easier. You can base a character or part of a character on somebody who actually exists. You know, at one point, I realized that I was thinking about the side of this person that I was writing about in this new novel as having the character's name, not a person's name. And I, I thought, okay, this is it. This is, you know, this is this wild alchemical process that fiction writers have always been talking about that I used to kind of scoff at, but, um, but it's, it's real. It's really helpful to engage the imagination in that way and contending with some 
material that just um, isn't isn't as comfortably encountered as just autobiography. What is your experience then of writing truth now that you have written fiction? Because as you know, it holds truth. It might not be a true story, but it holds truth versus when you're writing fact. I love that you said um, writing truth because it, it of course rhymes with Ruth, who is the protagonist of Very Cold People. And um, yeah, certainly that must have occurred to me at some point. But when I heard you say it, I thought, ooh, there's a little frisson of, uh, of uh, I don't know, something there. You know, I will say that since... Since finishing Very Cold People, I have started um, a couple of what I thought would be uh, long essays that have kind of disintegrated and found their way into the new novel. So I think I'm I think I'm just really taken by what fiction can do right now. And that's just what I'm interested in right now. I mean, basically, it sounds like you are off Sepulveda and you are on the freeway. (gasps) Oh, that is a beautiful and apt metaphor. Talking about seeing and not being seen in the binaries that you were mentioning, she has a line in there where she's babysitting some other kids and she asks herself, was I a spanker or a comforter um, for these kids? And it seems like this she had to find a binary because there was so much gray around her. She, she didn't really understand her mother and she made up so many stories about the house she was living in that she was seeking for that binary, but that, that wasn't where, what she was surrounded by. She was surrounded by gray. Yeah. And that, I think that's really common once, you know, if you're facing, an inordinate amount of confusing, chaotic information, you know, hey, you know, that's where, that's where, uh, you know, orthodoxy comes from. That's where, that's where it's religion comes from. Let's make it really easy to digest and make this bad and this good, and then we're fine. Um, but of course, you know, Ruthie isn't fine and nobody is fine. Did you think about that on the craft level, like how you write about someone who? Is, is is trying to piece through so many half pieces of information. Like how do you imbue that in the character and, and convey that to the reader? Yeah, if I thought about it in those terms, I don't think I could be a writer. I don't have the kind of mind that would be able to take all of those specs and then somehow translate them onto the blank page. Like that 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 sort of work seems to me to be closer to the work that a computer programmer does. And maybe I'm right or wrong about that, but the way that I work is really almost hundred percent intuitive, automatic. You know, I don't have a lot of ideas when I'm writing. It's, it's not um, an intellectual activity so much as um, it's whatever the alternative is to, is to the intellect. It's, you know, Lydia Davis, has this phrase about the guiding intelligence, um, which, which is a phrase, I mean, I guess you could also call it a sensibility, but um, you know, at this point, I've been doing this for a long time. Uh, 
uh, or a long enough time that I know how it feels when my awareness is um, alert and my sensibility is unimpeded and I can just kind of write the way that I write. I was talking with my friend, Julie Oringer, who is, uh, who I, I think of as a, a real novelist, <laughs> you know, not just somebody who wrote a novel by accident, but, you know, she and I have been friends for a long time and she, she is one of my lucky friends who has been aware of the last, you know, X number of years that I've been trying to write this book, um, of all the different ways that I tried and failed to do it. And she said to me recently, you know, about two years into daily work on this, on this book, you said to me, I think I figured it out. I'm just going to do the thing that I do and make it a novel. And she said, when you said that to me, I realized you were, you were finally going to write the damn book. And she, she's right. You know, like all I had to do was get out of my own way. Does that entail some bodily intelligence writing? Like, do you feel oh, in tune? Sure. I'm sure. I mean, I can't wait to read Melissa Fabos's body work, which comes out later this month, which is, um, yeah, maybe, you know, but, um, for those who don't, it's a, it's a book about, um, embodiment and craft. And, um, I'm, uh, I'm interested in the ways that the experiences of being an embodied person intersect with the experiences of being somebody who makes things, who makes art and, um, and who thinks about things. Certainly there's so much that I don't know or understand, but, um, I don't really want to, um, I like that I can live in a way that I don't under, you know, I don't fully understand. I don't fully understand where my writing comes from. I don't know. Um, you know, I occasionally think, um, I've written all these books that, you know, that can't be true. Like that, that just doesn't sound right. Like how, how has that even happened? You know, I haven't really reconciled like that. The fact that I've written all these books with like, that's myself who, who I am. I just really feel like somebody who's in the middle of one thing. And then later on might be in the middle of some new thing, but um, I don't know what that means or whether it's relevant to you just ask me. I'm curious about just violence. You had a line in there that said you can learn to eat violence. So talking about the body, there is, I mean, there's always the threat of violence, you know, when you're writing about a girl and, um, mm -hmm. you know, her body being violated in many ways. There's a bully in this book that bullies Ruthie. Um, there's girls in this book that are taken advantage of by much older men and that get pregnant. And then there's some inherent violence in her family, just what you would have to share about writing about that and, and why it was so important to you. The line you can learn to eat violence was an important one for me to give to Ruthie. And it's one of the moments in the book that I feel that I've managed to reconcile the experience of being an embodied person. And, um, you know, in this book, there's a lot of, there's a lot of dysfunction around eating and feeding people and food and, you know, uh, all things dietary and anxious. And the way that that 
intersects with violence that is sexual and uncontrollable um, and might also have a lot of overlap with um, an appetite for food, an appetite for violence, an appetite for, for um, violation, sexualities, and uh, you know every other every other way in which people can measure measure themselves against each other. It is a kind of plateau moment when Ruthie thinks to herself when she's dealing with being bullied, which is a really intimate experience in the book. I mean, it's like, it's so individuated. Like for her, it, it, it is, I guess there are, there are bullies who bully everybody, but, but her bully was just her bully. And, um, you know, that intimacy, it's, it could be one of the more intimate relationships that Ruthie has. And there's a moment in the book where she runs into her bully and there's no audience. It's just them alone in a stairwell. And he goes right past her and ignores her. And I didn't include on the page, you know, any disappointment, you know, you know, I didn't, I didn't say that Ruthie felt ignored or disappointed, but she does. And in the same way that when she's getting groped, molested by her gym teacher later on, it's not a wholly negative experience. And she says, I knew that on some level, he liked me. It wasn't violence, but you know, but it, it is, but it, 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 but it's also not. So, um, so yeah, no, your point that there, there's intersection between all of these appetites involving food, sex, and domination is um, really apt. A lot of the book to me felt like it was also just about storytelling, that the stories we tell ourselves that Ruthie would go into her mind and think about the people that lived in the house before her that she was trying to get to the root of her mom's story, that she has older relatives around her. And this might have been something that just came out when you were writing, but what's your reaction when I say that? I think it's one of those things that only somebody else, only an astute reader can tell you about your own book. I hope for this to happen every time I publish a book. And and it has happened with very cold people and it's, it's happening right now. Yeah, of course it's about storytelling. There are so many ways in which Ruthie takes information and makes it into a story. She, um, you know, there are stories that are given to her as stories that she um, sort of include that are included on the page as writ as, you know, this, for this first person remembering of, you know, the great love story of, of her family. While on the other hand, there's the kind of story that she really, it's more than half wholly her invention, even though it's based on this real, well, real to her real in the book um, person, Winifred Cabot Fish, who, um, is the woman who built and died in the house that she, that Ruthie and her parents move into when Ruthie's 13. You know, certainly it's a truism to say that stories are the way that we make sense of the world. It's one of the, you know, we, you brought up the kind of the, the good, the good evil binary that we project onto the chaos. Well, you know, there's three X structure that we project onto the chaos too. And that's uh, comforting in a different way, despite that you could easily say, well, the, this, 
this book is really written in in one mode. It, it's a constellation of very minutely observed details, and there is a lot of um, silence built in to that very partial mosaic of closely observed details. But on the other hand, you're right. Like I, I feel like Ruthie deals with and invents and or partly invents all these different kinds of stories. I mean, there's like her life, there's Winifred's life, which is this kind of shadow life that Ruthie uses as almost like a practice round for getting out of Waitsfield. She imagines this woman of agency, Winifred, who um, is, you know, essentially she's like a man in that she's a sexual predator and she predates upon her teenage neighbor. And uh, yeah, there are some stories that kind of come down to Ruthie as like canonical. And then there is some information that's sort of a story or part of a story that like just doesn't make any fucking sense. Like the story of Officer Hill, like nobody can really understand why Officer Hill shoots himself. And, um, and because they can't understand it, they make up stories and they're, you know, there's like sort of this almost silent, uh, tacit agreement upon what the real story was, but nobody really knows. I mean, you can't. You can't, but because nobody talks about their feelings in this town, in this Waitsfield, um, there's just all the more opportunity for people to like project whatever story they want onto everybody around them. Okay. I got a weird image in my head um, when you were talking. So here's what it was. All, it's like the connection of all these things. When you said that your book is like a constellation, I was thinking of like the galaxy and how a fragmented book like yours is like looking up at the dark sky and the stars are your, your little paragraphs and that the, the darkness between is the silence and that that's what makes the, the stars so bright is the darkness in between versus maybe the regular kind of novel is just like a sun. Oh, wow. That's a lot. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course, it, it pleases me to be, you know, the, the dark, mysterious type rather than the, you know, the well adjusted cheerleader. I don't know. Um, it's sort of like an East Coast, West Coast thing the, the cold, dark versus the, um, you know, the happy, happy, bright. As you were describing this this um, constellation metaphor, I was thinking that um, a constellation in itself is a, a story that we make up about the sky because, of course, you know these like little these you know the eagle is not like stars like here 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 and here. I mean they're like you know they're in three dimensions. We're seeing them in two in two dimensions as if it's this nice black background upon which there are these little diamonds. But it's just chaos. Like there's this one that's close to us. And then this one's like, you know, billions of fucking like inconceivable distances between each other. But but we see a bird. And so, yeah, I think that might be uh, an even closer metaphor to the kind of order that we're trying to make out of the absolute chaos that is all we have. 
Did you know that Very Cold People was going to be the title or was that when you wrote that line in the book? No, no. I had so many different titles um, and, you know, with each one you feel like, yeah, this is this is absolutely the one. For a long time, it was just going to be called Winifred because I thought that was the most important part of the book. And I think it kind of, you know, in a shadow way, it is one of the most important parts of the book. It was after a character speaks the line in which the, you know, containing the phrase very cold people that that kind of announced itself as what, you know, would ultimately become the title. I just wanted to ask you, since you talk about the intuitive level of your process, what your editing process is then like? I don't really have a process. I just kind of like, I I just make it tidier. And when I can't tidy it further without harming it, then I'm done. Um, But I don't, um, you know, the only thing I do is I, I write in, I think relatively, although I don't know how other people work really, but, you know, I write in what I imagine to be relatively short compositional units and they can often just be like a sentence and then there's a pause and then there's the next unit and it might be, you know, a few thousand words or a sentence or, or however long. And then I, um, and then I see if I can combine the units and create larger units and they're not paragraphs. And that's why I'm not using the word paragraph. They're made of sentences though. And, um, you know, once the kind of, once, once I've accumulated them into as few, uh, what, like conglomerated units as I can muster, then I'm done. But also all, all alongside like grouping them and, and amassing them, I'm, I'm also making, I'm also eliminating all of the unnecessary material. And that to me is almost like a sexual pleasure. I love getting rid of material that I don't need. And, um, you know, which I guess may, should make should surprise no one who's ever read a page that I've written, but um, I find it very pleasurable to get things into the the most potent, densest form. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you as a writer? Maybe it influenced you while you were writing this? Yeah, this is, um, I'm just going to read from the very beginning of Miriam Gerba's book, Mean. Um, And uh, for those who don't know, this came out in 2017. It's a memoir. It's a true crime memoir. I believe that's how she has described it herself. Um, True crime memoir and ghost story. You know what? I'm just going to read one one sentence from the back. True crime memoir and ghost story mean is the bold and hilarious take of Miriam Gerba's coming of age as a queer, mixed-raced Chicana. This is the beginning of mean. Wisdom. Let's become a spot upon which fateful moonlight shines. Let's become that night. Let's become that park. Let's absorb and drip. We're damp grains of earth. We're grass purged of color. We're baseball bleachers. We're November's darkness. We're the baseball diamond's sediment. We host little league games by daylight. By dark, we become an Aztec altar. We open our eyes. We allow them to adjust to the place and things described. Seasonal quiet prevails. Nothing squeaks or whimpers, nothing hums. In a tunnel beneath the bleachers, a gopher daydreams. Roots sigh. Earthworms blindly go about their business. A dark-haired girl walks alone. 
Her foot falls onto the grass. We see up her skirt. She's not wearing underwear, so we can see that special part of her. It's the hole Persephone fell into. Some swine fell down it too. And I'll stop there. Um, I chose this passage because, well, the entire book is just absurdly potent and almost, even now having, having read it a number of times, I mean, it's just, it electrifies me. And um, I mean, I guess if I could try to articulate why um, it's such an incredibly powerful piece of work, one thing I could say is that at, on every page, I am sensing that the author is engaging absolutely every way that she can transmute um, life into language. So she's, um, she's an investigator, she's a reporter, but she's a poet, she's a person in a, in a body, She's uh, an artist who makes things up. She's um, a poet who makes juxtapositions and comparisons that a normal person wouldn't make. Um, and she's also got an incredible, she has a musician's ear so that the experience of reading it is not the experience of reading, you know, what we would call, I guess, conventional prose. Um, nor is it verse, but it's it's some wonderful um, it's 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 on some wonderful uh, point um, between those two things. I hesitate to use the word hybrid, but I just used it. Um, and so it's it's just this like multivocal uh, you know extravaganza that takes place on every single page that just blows me away. It's one of my favorite books. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Yeah. Um, I'm going to read from Very Cold People. This is this is a passage from chapter two. And um, Ruthie is just um, reporting on a scene with her and her parents. The three of us just about fit on the tiny sofa, though it was difficult because my father was always poking me in the ribs and my mother was always jiggling her feet, holding her hands between her thighs and twitching them and making little sticky sounds with her mouth. My mother got up from the sofa and sat in a wooden chair to the left of it, though I don't remember if the chair was always there. In memory, it stands half in and half out of the doorway. She sat in the chair and then slid herself down, so her crotch pressed against the wooden edge of the seat. She gripped the arms of the chair and rubbed herself against the edge of it as if to scratch an itch. I held my breath. If I got up and left the room, I would be admitting that something was happening in front of me, but if I stayed and ignored it, there was some small possibility that it wasn't happening, that it hadn't happened and never would. So I stayed. And this is, this is a passage that was it was important to me to get just right because you know it it not only is about um you know it's it's a kind of um the, the mother character is sexually inappropriate around Ruthie and um I'm somewhat hesitant to classify it as violence but it's um it is it is harm and so it was important for me to communicate that in a way that was 
sufficiently terrifying and and you know um so maybe somewhat obviously um it became clear to me that the, the way to make it terrifying was the way was to just quiet it down as much as i could and um and that wound up satisfying me and i also wanted to say something i wanted to include something in that scene that um at least gestured toward the larger patterns of violence that were happening all around Ruthie, you know, in and out of her home and school and the town and the landscape. Um, and that wound up being her, Ruthie's kind of commentary at the end where she's saying, you know, if, if I pretended that nothing was happening, you know, I could maybe, <laughs> I could maybe imagine it away, which is exactly the way that, um, the, the way that um, everybody in Waitsfield dealt with the violence that was happening constantly everywhere. Where do you write? I write everywhere. <laughs> I am a mother who, um, until very recently, only really ever wrote in the kind of interstitial moments around um, mothering and house minding. And uh, I've, even though my, my, my situation changed recently so that I, I do have more time to myself than I ever have, um, I'm, I'm still just so accustomed to just fitting writing into any, you know, any available moment that I, I still kind of work that way. It's, uh, it's ingrained into habit now. So like, even when I'm driving, I, um, I talk to myself about what I'm working on and I, uh, you know, I don't use my phone while I'm driving, but I, um, you know, I will pull over and like email myself some stuff if I need to. And, uh, you know, I, I really admire people who say that they're sitting down for their, you know, their so-called, you know, minutes or hours of writing time. But um, on the other hand, I think like, how many more books do I need to be writing? Like, I don't, I don't necessarily want, you know, I don't have um, an aspiration to like finish two books a year or anything. It's just, it, it you know, despite the, despite the fact that um, I'm not a, a full, you know, I, I'm not a full-time writer, um, I, I don't know that I could churn out more books, um, you know, given all the time in the world to write them. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Um, it's, it's really not that exciting, but I, I walk, <laughs> I have a, a mile loop in my neighborhood that I kind of mapped out and it's so automatic that, uh, when I go for a walk, I, I just do, I just, you know, put on my sneakers and I, I do my, my mile laps and I count them because I like, I, you know, I like um, measuring things. I like knowing how many words I've written and I like knowing um, how many miles I've walked. And so, um, yeah, I just, I do it as many times as I have time for. And, and that's basically what I do. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? You know, it depends on the piece. Uh, I am very, very fortunate to have uh, a circle of very good friends who are also very good writers and they're very good writers each in their own distinct way you know we're all we're all approximately 40 to 55 and um, so each of us has our peculiarities and so there's somebody there's my narrative person 
And, um, and then there's my person who tells me whether I'm, you know, I'm being, I'm writing authentically in my own voice or I'm trying to kind of pander to some imagined audience. And, and there's, uh, one to one person who tells me if I'm being funny enough. Uh, and, you know, and, and so like, you know, you just, you know, it's like, it's like, uh, I don't know, like a doctor diagnosing some, you know, nutritional deficiency. Like, yeah, I, I, I can, I can diagnose what deficiency the writing has, and then I can kind of, you know, send it to whatever specialist it needs to see. How have you dealt with rejection? I really love this question and I don't remember how I answered it before. So, um, <laughs> I should, I should, I should check to see if I'm, uh, going to, uh, disagree with myself here, but, um, I really do feel like if harsh criticism is written in good faith and, um, intelligently, then it, I'm, you know, I, it doesn't, it doesn't affect me. I mean, I guess it affects me, but like, I'm grateful for it. Right. I mean, because it's like, it's the artifact of something, someone having engaged with your work in an authentic way. And, um, but the harshest criticism, you know, the, the, the review that just, it's, it's an absolute pan is I find often written in poor faith. And then by which I mean that the critic isn't, you know, just engaging with the work at hand, but is bringing, some irrational or irrelevant bias into it, um, some idea about who the writer is or their personality or um, writers that um, the critic, you know, imagines are are similar to you or or that you like or that you don't like. And and then, you know, when you when you're faced with that kind of criticism, um, you know, you have to consider that someone has this like irrational loathing that they're directing toward you. And for me, that's harder to emotionally disentangle from. And because it reminds me of all the systemic hatreds that infiltrate absolutely everything everywhere. And being a woman, I face this sort of criticism continually. I can only imagine what it's like to be a woman of color dealing with, uh, you know, more than one elephant hose of, uh, of hatred at all times. And what is your favorite word? 11. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your thoughts with me. I really appreciate it. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Mitzi. If you like today's show with Sarah Manguso, author of Very Cold People, check out my first interview with Sarah on her essay collection, 300 Arguments. We talked about making a book out of small segments, the influence of our childhoods, and collecting and sorting our most important stories. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 350 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft ADOW. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips for my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash first draft writers. 
Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Keith O'Brien, No Violet Bulaweo, Jacinda Townsend, Ada Limon, and soon Wiley. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.